You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. What would it look like if we were all surrogates for each other in all kinds of different ways? If we ushered ourselves through the world and held each other in our porousness, our wateriness, our undeniable and often conflictual interdependency. So I think this is a moment of undeniable interdependency becoming clear. What would it look like to live well by it? On Labor Wave, we speak with Natasha Leonard, a contributing writer for The Intercept, whose work has appeared regularly in The New York Times, Nation, Esquire, Vice, Salon, and The New Inquiry. She teaches critical journalism at the New School for Social Research and co-authored Violence, Humans, and Dark Times with Brad Evans. The focus of our conversation is derived from essays in Natasha Leonard's book for Verso called Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. She talks about non-fascist life amid a pandemic, believing impossibly that another world is possible, and the phenomenon of accidents amid so-called progress. We have an upcoming episode about wrench strikes that will be featuring Liza Featherstone as well as some local tenants organizing against rent in the Oregon area. And we'll be featuring another episode of our mini-series After the Revolution on Waste with Andrea Haverkamp, a PhD candidate in environmental engineering. All of our content is offered for free on our website at laborwaveradio.com, and we ask that you just share our content, follow us on our various social media platforms, and send us suggestions for things to discuss in the future. LaborWave is going to be organizing a number of open forums around the topic of socialism, And if you would like to give us some questions about socialism that we can offer to a special guest that we'll invite onto these open forums, we'll make sure to name you in the question and give you some acknowledgement. And we hope that these conversations will be a way of broadening access and conversation and discussion around just what precisely we mean by socialism in the 21st century. The place I wanted to start was with a quote from the poem that you use pretty often and you refer to often in your writing in the essay online after the quarantine, the flood that you penned, you selected this particular uh, stanza, I suppose it's called from the poem, obsessed, bewildered by the shipwreck of the singular, we have chosen the meaning of being numerous. Why do you keep returning to those lines? So that, that poem by George Oppen, which was written In 1968, the poem is called Of Being Numerous. And yeah, I I certainly keep returning to it. I mean, I cribbed from it for my book title. I just basically stole it and called my book Being Numerous. 
Um, and particularly those lines, I think, are really striking and seem applicable again and again to so many sociopolitical circumstances we find ourselves in that relate to not only how we are enumerated and how we get to live as enumerated and numerous masses together, um, but I'm particularly interested in the way Oppen frames the idea of choosing the meaning of being numerous. And uh, the first time I really was trying to ruminate on that came about when I was writing a number of years ago when I was writing about um, the Snowden NSA revelations and that kind of tangled complicity and consent and uh, lack thereof when it comes to how we live enumerated, counted, surveilled online and those who can benefit from that and those who are punished by that and the kind of impossibilities of a certain descent from that type of being numerous and how far does it make sense to talk of choosing that meaning of being numerous. And then again, now we find ourselves in a really fierce moment of having to think about our, ourselves both as statistics with more or less proximity to certain dangers under a pandemic, thinking about the ways in which some of us can avail ourselves to being individualized family units, closed off from certain other numbers of humans and risks and those who obviously can't, those enumerated by virtue of being prisoners or forced into shelters or overcrowded, overcrowded workplaces or um, project housing that has not nearly enough resources and space for people to be safely distanced and isolated right now. So I think, again, the, the kind of open framing of what it means to choose the meaning of being numerous really struck me. And not only in um, painful ways, obviously what we're seeing right now in a really affirming and really powerful sense is explosion of mutual aid networks and people making really wonderful choices about the meaning of being numerous at a time like this when we can't be proximal. Um, safely. So I think that that's why those lines came back to me and keep coming back to me um, and seem applicable again and again. It seems too, like from your essay for Commune, you're really trying to wrestle or ruminate over your position in all of this from the position of somebody that has the ability to remove themselves from a lot of the risk of the pandemic. And I really like the uh, line that you have. I want to quote it from the essay. If it is because we see our potential for interconnectedness that we stay home, what will we do with that same potential in plain sight now when this virus has peaked and passed? So again, returning to that, how do we choose to be numerous? What are the choices that you hope people will make once the pandemic has subsided to some degree? Because it sounds like that's what you're really kind of wondering in this essay is like, are we going to just completely forget about this, ignore some of the revelations that should have been available to us right now, or are we going to make different choices? Right, totally. I mean, so the I guess the kind of point I make, I'm trying to push in this this short piece that I wrote for Commune, is um, kind of summed up in how I end the piece, which is if we know where to avoid each other, we know where to find each other too. And I think, especially when lockdowns first started, 
there was this growing fixation, I think, for a lot of people on the spaces where bodies can mix, where breaths can mix, where we could be mingling spit and be together that we don't think of maybe all too often in those in those terms of how we work as, as flows together in a city through certain junctions and intersections. And now we think of them in this kind of fearful way and sites to avoid and the vagaries of inequality and capital distribution make very clear who can avoid and who can't avoid. So what does it mean to, to keep hold of that and to be aware that there are so many sites of intersections and ways to be proximal together and come together that are so important that we're kind of fixating on in, in negative space now. But what would it look like to hold on to that and fixate differently when we're able to actually come together as bodies, say, in the streets or um, in transport intersections again? And obviously, we have really powerful examples that predate the pandemic, if you think about some of the blockades of oil pipelines, or if you think about the mass protests that surged towards airports after the Muslim ban was announced, and any kind of major examples of, of intersection lockdowns, the blocking of ice vans, community defenses in the streets, these are really crucial examples of being proximal together prior to the pandemic that, you know, hopefully we hold fast to. 2019 was a year of really explosive, like social street explosions and struggles from Chile to Hong Kong and beyond. And now we're kind of nullified in um, isolation and that's the best we can do for many, many people to stay safe. So I guess remembering what it means to be numerous differently is really crucial. And obviously we've been thinking about that because we know what what areas to avoid. We know where intersections of human, human flow exist or could exist. I'm reminded of the subtitle of your recent book of essays. So the book is called Being Numerist, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. And in thinking about the places that we choose to congregate, the ways that we choose to enumerate ourselves, I can't help but like recall and be reminded of daily with the headlines of people protesting their social distancing and showing up in mass congregations and in the streets to say that we want to be together and exhibiting what I would probably describe as more fascistic behavior versus the non-fascist life that you're writing about in your book. Uh, I don't know if I really have a question there. I'm just kind of thinking about it. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, it's, it's a really obviously like perverse conception of liberation that um, the, this very small, I'll note, number of anti-lockdown or anti-social distancing protesters are taking part in and that, you know, Trump is voting, is tweeting, uh, you know, liberate Minnesota along with them. And a really, really nasty perversion of the of liberation language. Obviously, those sort of protests have to be completely rejected as any performance of a fight for true liberation. Keep in mind, this is once again falling into a lot of the mythology that followed Trump's election of a kind of liberal media scowling at a white working class without paying attention to actually who that white working class they were talking about might be. These few hundred protesters are on the whole actually pretty well off suburbanites. 
There's only a few hundred of them. They're garnering an absolutely disproportionate amount of media attention. I think obviously because they've been um, endorsed by Trump through kind of abstract tweets, but also because I think a kind of Washington Post style New York Times readership really enjoys feeling superior to that kind of like backward, backwards, right wing conservatism, which is no doubt dangerous and reactionary. But of course, these, a lot of these people aren't really saying we we want to be together. We want to be differently numerous. We want to be communal. What they're saying is we want essential workers to be expanded in numbers and more people to be able to die so we can accumulate capital again. I mean, that's what those protests are clearly about um, under the very, very flimsy guise of liberation. And, and you know, very few people, even very few reactionaries are even fully buying it. And in the meantime, what's actually a shame around that moment, I would say it's, it's more of a media narrative shame and that these, these people are getting a huge amount of attention for how fringe they are. I mean, if only like fringe leftist activity got nearly as much media attention, because, you know, we're, we're what, if we want to talk about different sort of communizing efforts that we are seeing in response to this pandemic, the economic crisis that predated it and exa exacerbated by it, and the, all the cruelties that are being so exacerbated in this moment, we're, we're seeing an immense amount of unprecedented activity in terms of labor strikes there's like a wave of labor strikes from amazon workers instacart shoppers fast food delivery workers so many unprecedented numbers of work workouts and uh, walkouts and organized coordinated calling in sick at the same time you know uh, come may 1st uh we're looking at probably the largest coordinated rent strike in new york city at least in almost a century is being planned. And that's, you know, been organized by tenants unions, by activists, by people who've never thought of themselves as participating in a rent strike or any kind of radical framing um, of their relationship to their conditions, their material conditions, their housing for the first time ever. And that's all been organized without having to put bodies at extra risk. And I think that's really astounding stuff and it's getting a kind of fraction of the establishment media attention i fully agree I, that was one of the immediate impressions i had too is just like it's a shame that the mutual aid networks that i've seen in my own neighborhood propping up and doing like tremendous work and getting more than yeah i don't live in a huge town but getting more than 200 people to sign up and volunteer within a week it's like tremendous like way more activity i do i don't want to dwell too much on the uh, right-wing protesters but what I was looking at when I was reading the headlines and kind of watching some video clips from it is, you know, there's some, I agree with what you're saying. There's a lot of liberal smugness in how people are kind of reacting to these folks being like, oh, look how unintelligent, how reactionary they are. You know, go back to your bunker kind of uh, mentality. And I hear people like talking about how they can't get their hair dyed and stuff. And it is, you know, quaint at first. You kind of want to laugh at them. But then I think about it more. And it doesn't surprise me. That when you grow up in a capitalist consumer society, that when people don't have the ability to participate in self-soothing activities like getting their hair dyed or just fast food consumption every single day that they want it or whatever, you know, these kinds of minimal forms of leisure that's available to us, 
that when those things are stripped away, it's like we have no sense of what to do. Like we don't have any ability to like shift to different forms of pleasure and leisure. Uh, they're just not made available to us. So like we've grown up in a way that we've been so starved of the idea of what pleasure could look like in a different kind of society. Yeah. And I mean, what, what's interesting is that, you know, there's no way of, you know, picking apart, you know, say you've got a, a group of people who are saying I'm desperately missing and, and, and there's a truth to it. I'm desperately missing getting my hair done. Um, obviously, there's so much that can be taken from that sentence is it oh you only value yourself because of a certain look that you've been demanded to have or you feel empowered by it and that's great or actually as is true in so many communities the hairdresser and the barbershop are real sites of communal gathering and they actually do exceed themselves as whether or not they're places of commerce they're actually places of community too and so many sites have those multiple layers um, that I'm obviously and I think all of us are Aside from when you hear it coming from a really disingenuous and uncaring place, for example, a kind of uh, racist protester wanting to send immigrants back to work whilst also closing borders. I'm not interested in being generous to that kind of person and their speech, but people missing the kind of pleasures of shopping or beauty treatments and elements of that. Of course, there's like a they're, they're missing the service, but I'm sure there's also a way of pointing out how much people miss those just sites of of togetherness and touch and ways in which you can come together that, yeah, largely don't exist, especially, I mean, in New York, there aren't a lot of places, people don't have a lot of home space, obviously, and there aren't a lot of public spaces available for free and open long sociality you know you can't drink in a park um so you know it's not and it's no wonder that the, the sites that we miss are usually also sites where we have to pay for stuff and yeah wouldn't it be nice if that were um fully challenged and upturned by virtue of this crisis i i i hope there are a lot of reckonings um and i think there might be some um, and certainly, I hope that a lot of the incredible mutual aid networks that have formed um, don't dissolve as soon as shops open up and that we continue this work. But at the same time, when I see people tweeting things like, oh, you know, now neoliberalism's dead. I'm like, hey, for like, what, the gazillionth time? And like, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm, I'm as skeptical of the kind of, you know, however well-meaning revolutionary spirit that's like well it's it's a free-for-all now we get to, <laughs> welcome to full communism once once everything once everyone's better um and obviously that's absurd and incorrect and doesn't manage to deal with the the vast problematic power structures that this virus has not felled but i do obviously see like many of us a lot of apertures for points of of pushing from the part of workers and you know viewing ourselves as communal beings and you know not just individual consumers like I think I think there is uh, a lot of opportunity there but I don't definitely don't think it's any sort of determined fate absolutely I mean I'm guilty of this too and that the quote that I continue to see is people pulling back to like Rosa Luxemburg now the choice is between socialism or barbarism 
I, I actually think that might be a, a fair framework for today of like the directions that it might be available to us. But what you're saying, I think you capture really well in your commune essay. I'm going to quote at you again, your own writing, if you don't mind. I, I think it's uh, on point. You write that the logic of virus containment has not escaped the logic of capitalism. There's a reason that power will bend in the face of what it sees as a temporary crisis in order to keep capital buoyant in the long term. Mass disruptions caused by strikes and industrial sabotage tend to win fewer and slower concessions from power than the pandemic has brought about. Bosses know that workers, unlike viruses, question their current containment under capitalism when its conditions are shown to be contingent and mutable. Stoppages and disruptions become uncontainable. So it sounds like there you're kind of like displaying again. There might be options, there might be opportunities, but this isn't determined and destined to topple governments, overthrow capitalism, win communism. So what choices do you think we should try to nurture and strengthen and highlight most in this moment and not just like have easy victories or claim, you know, easy conclusions? A lot of what I'm getting at that in that little passage is that, you know, the, re- the reason a ruling class, uh, the capital cl- capitalist class, will not as readily bend to, say, a mass work stoppage as it would a forced pandemic stoppage is because there's a resistance to masses of workers realizing that they, if collectively organized, have power, that capital doesn't exist without labor. So I do feel like that's where the the opportunity, that's where the strength that you're already seeing here is. Workers saying, screw you, you're saying we're essential. We knew that. And now you see that too. And now the world is, and so you better treat us as essential. But that's obviously the beginning of a struggle that already was ongoing and now has been at best emboldened, but under really, really terrifying and devastating conditions for, say, for example, Amazon workers, Walmart workers who are on the front lines and are at incredibly high risk and still have very, very few protections, if any, and some, you know, small victories, which were really hard won. So I see this as a kind of mass point and upsurge of organizing and people taking really brave steps, but, um, and that's something to build upon, but I don't, to say anything beyond that, I think would be, I don't know, too presumptuous. But it's more astounding the the work that you are seeing happening on the ground and the amount of people in. I'm reporting right now for my intercept column on on the upcoming rent strike and some of the tenants who are not only just signing up to be strikers and publicly saying that, but also who are organizing. These are people who are in many cases undocumented who obviously have numerous, numerous fears about being taken to housing court, about facing any sort of institutional pushback, and are saying, like, look, we can't pay. And not only can't we pay, and we're going to, you know, subjugate ourselves into shame and apologies and begging, um, we're going to recognize that collectively this isn't on us, and it shouldn't be on us, and there's no moral failing here. There is no failure to pay. There's at this point now a refusal. And I think that's a huge shift. So in April, I think about 13 million renters didn't pay their rent because they couldn't. And to see a dramatic shift in rhetoric away from can't to won't, if that sort of thing sticks and 
reorients how we think of our relationship to the properties we live in and housing. I mean, that alone is huge. And you're, you're already seeing aspects of that taking hold, if not vast scales, certainly on considerable scales within the last century of American history. In your introduction to your book, Being Numerous, you talk about, in a very specific way, accidents. And those are the accidents kind of contained within technological progress, as well as other things that capitalism claims are progress. I'm kind of wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by accidents, and also what accidents do you think this pandemic is revealing for us? Sure. So when I use accidents in the book, I'm particularly um, using the term as it was used by Paul Virilio, the late great urbanist. And he talked of accidents in the senses of those things that are not aberrations of, but inevitabilities baked into a certain mode of what we call or what gets to be called progress. So the the Ur example was, you know, you invent the plane and you invent the plane crash. So before the invention, before the high-speed rail, there was not the capacity in the world for such a thing, such an accident of the scale of a plane crash, a high-speed rail crash, you know, nuclear fusion, nuclear bomb. So it's not that if you invent the aeroplane, the jumbo jet, there will necessarily be X number or there will necessarily, this exact plane would necessarily crash. It's that you've brought in the new potential for this kind of accident in the world that didn't pre-exist this act of progress. And Virilio is not a Luddite and he's not saying, so no more airplanes or so no more online connections because the accident of them might be mass surveillance. He's just warning correctly against this sort of lionization, fetishization of progress that doesn't also account for its accidents in the terms that he means accidents. And the way Virilio kind of uh, applies that pretty much um, wholly to technological advancement, both in modes of, of transport and communications um, and weaponry. And I just crib that and also apply it to progress as it's described in, in that kind of arc of history, progress um, within the socio-political field. And when I was writing the book, the focus there was to speak against that liberal reading of 2016 election as some sort of aberration, some bizarre U-turn in history back to the early 20th century, as if fascistic evolutions aren't always continuous with modernity. They always have been, they always were. Um, Trump is not an aberration, even if he's horrific, even if it's a worst and worst case scenario, it has to be seen as in the Virilian sense, the accident built in and baked in to the system of capitalism that we were all too comfortable calling, not we, but many were all too comfortable calling um, an assertive space and trajectory of progress. So then how can we think about the accident in those terms with the pandemic? Well, in terms of novel viruses and these new sorts of pandemics and their increasing regularity, many people have pointed out, many people wiser than me, that 
the accident here, these are the accident of certain types of environmental disruptions when certain species are brought into human contact that wouldn't have otherwise been. There are other viruses, other novel viruses that are accidents in that sense of mass farming and, agri and the agro trade and the way certain animals are mass killed and treated and spread across the world because of agro farming. So I think that would be the framing I would apply here. I mean, not necessarily to the coronavirus, but definitely in terms of the way we think about supply chains and what we rely upon and how things get to spread and what sort of, yeah, like what sort of like movements around the world have enabled not only just the virus to spread, but also the virus to become a pandemic, right? And the pandemic is the crisis and the pandemic is a crisis of capitalism and a crisis of inequality and a crisis of brutality and cruelty and barbarism. So, uh, you know, it's not just one lineage of, oh, here's what makes a virus possible and here's how it spreads. It's what are the certain ways in which our world and that has been accepted, our world has been constructed and established such that a virus like this can become a pandemic in the way that it has and who is harmed by it who gets killed who's offered up for slaughter essentially so it's a you know it's a lot going on there but I definitely think the Virilian idea of, of the accident is is always useful in these sort of considerations when you hear all too many people go well how did this happen but progress I really like this line in your, uh, I believe it's your first essay in the book, um, We the Anti-Fascist, about liberals. But first I'll preface it with just kind of wondering, like, the liberal viewpoint on all of this, the liberal assessment on like what, what this pandemic reveals. You write, it is a great liberal tradition to stand on the wrong side of history until that history is comfortably in the past, which I think is pretty, pretty spot on. You know, you're seeing people like Joe Biden, who's our presumptive, dem well, he's going to be the Democratic nominee for president, still kicking and screaming against the ideas that Medicare for all is a necessity. You see the Democrats every now and then getting punched from the left in some ways by the Republicans. The Republicans are beating them to the idea of like providing direct stimulus to people, and then they come along. What do you make of this whole like liberal reaction to things? And what do you think? is the possibility for maybe more liberals kind of starting to become radicalized in this moment? I know that's a big question. I don't, obviously, I have like very, very little hope of a kind of Biden-Pelosi style liberal having any sort of radical like rethinking or reorienting um, themselves, their ethics, their motivations, who they serve at all. You know, I, I think these are, these are, these are conservative. Obviously, they are very interested in conserving. And so, you know, that those are some kind of, if you think of like the democratic establishment, I don't see much, much shifting there. And I think they'll lose. And I think that's obviously worrying. I mean, I despise Joe Biden, but I deeply fear another four years of Trump beyond that. Liberal is obviously quite a loose word. I mean, <laughs> most political categories work as sort of family resemblance concepts, right? They're kind of interconnecting networks. Um, so I can't be like liberals, be doomed because X. You know, I'm sure there will be a lot of people who by virtue of loss or hardship 
in the virus could potentially start rethinking a reliance on the democratic establishment and its promises and you know the the idea that the healthcare system is sufficient i think the current situation gives lie to that but i don't think that necessarily entails there being a grand reckoning and a jump to the left um and it's obviously on on all of us to kind of try and try and push that and and to look after each other because the state's really not going to um sufficiently and to put pressure on the state as opposed to assuming that that goodwill is there so yeah i mean honestly i just democrats are absolutely doomed i think it's an absolute absolute horror show i didn't don't really know what else to say about it i'm predicting a loss in the general election too i don't i don't know what their strategy is at all but yeah, I've, I've been chewing on this question a lot because when this pandemic first started kicking off and starting to see the like, impacts of it and predicting the economic catastrophe that's going to ensue, that already is ensuing for a lot of people, but will just get worse and worse. It was easy for me to immediately be like, well, now we've been exposed, like how all these socialist and communist and anarchist ideas are correct. But then I remember, and I know this because I've been organizing for a long time, that people's ideologies go deep. They do not change very easily. And I guess I just keep wondering, like, what does it take to change people's attitudes and ideologies so that they start participating in, like, class struggle? I know that's, like, a question with no easy answers. Yeah, I don't think it has an answer at all. And I think you see different versions of it. I mean, quite a lot in my career, I've definitely been, like, asked, you know, I guess, if not asked, um, criticized for not sort of trying to convince, you know, perhaps a, an old, a, a boomer liberal audience uh, more generously. And my answer has probably always been a bit glib, but I do agree with it, which is like, no, I'm kind of not trying to convince them. I'm trying to like help people that already are living under these terms, understanding it, already suffering the most. Um, and are already trying to fight to spread that fight. Like, I don't need to be some messenger. People are already doing that work from the ground up. You know, I could spend the rest of my life, like, asking, you know, like, banging on doors in Calorama or wherever, like, rich people live in Washington, being like, but don't you see? But I don't, I don't really think that's, I think that's not how our politics work, right? Like, we build from the ground up rather than convincing the top point is to make the top uncomfortable and that's what things like strikes and rent strikes do um which isn't to say i'm not grateful for like the influx of politicians who do genuinely seem to give a shit um like ilana ma and alexandria ocasio cortez like i do genuinely think they have good politics and care but again like you, you don't need to go begging to them you don't need to convince them so it's about building those coalitions and fighting there are so many people you don't need to convince that actually you just need to like work with and help that I think it speaks to a flaw in mainstream media understanding of how political historical world historical political change happens that there seems to be this gobsmackedness of why aren't people trying to convince us and prove to us why aren't the left trying to convince us and coddle us and I'm not convinced convince me you know it's like that meme with the guy that was like on a table like Tell, argue, tell me I'm wrong or something, convince me I'm wrong. Sorry, I have terrible meme memory. But 
but I'm just not that interested in doing that. And then, you know, you sometimes see like rare examples of just, I don't know, good changes in disposition and, and commitments to ideology. Like, like my mom has gone really left wing in the last 15 years and she was, she was not. I think she used to think Margaret Thatcher was a good woman and she doesn't anymore. Um, so, you know, if you're stuck at home with your mums, talk to your mums and or choose better mums. Also a choice. <laughs> I've had a similar experience in my mom's political evolution and it's hard to figure out if it's like it's a both end, I guess, like I've influenced her or vice versa and so forth and material circumstances of her life, I think have drawn her to these conclusions, but she's shifted from like, I think saying positive things about Ronald Reagan to being like a big Bernie Sanders supporter and stuff. It's true. So people can change. And I do agree with what you're saying though, is like, we probably don't need the mass numbers that people assume you need to like make massive changes in the political and social order. I mean, what you're saying makes me wonder about just going back to being numerous, maybe being numerous isn't necessarily like a numbers consideration in the labor movement. I'm a labor organizer. And I do think at times there's like maybe an overemphasis on mass numbers. Like there's always this, we have to have super majority everything to be effective. But then I recall that in an earlier conversation I had on the show with Gerard Shanahan, he pointed out that the abolitionist movement was never more than like a minimal fraction of the population in the United States that did massive major things that had major impacts. And it seems like a lot of political history reveals that even when you're talking about mass numbers, you're really talking about like tiny slivers of the overall population. So being numerous might just be being numerous in our own networks. And I also, I think it totally depends on on the conversation you'll have, like, what are you trying to, what are we talking about? What are we trying to achieve? So, and that question, I think when it comes to strategies and tactics, there's a lot of unfinished questions there of like, you know, obviously the biggest, biggest protests ever against the Iraq war were not very potent because they didn't stop a war, but they also did, however kind of fangless they might have felt, politicize in a certain way, a generation of people that then moved on to, to in a lot of cases, do a lot more potent activism and organizing. And if the end end of itself, in and of itself of a big mass protest is just for people to be out together, like, and feel, feel some sense of togetherness, like during the Women's March on the day after Trump's inauguration, then what then maybe that's what that's for, but let's not pretend it's a threat. So I think, you know, being clear about what you want a set of numbers to do. So, you know, with something like a rent strike, I think numbers do matter because something like a rent strike in New York, you're trying to push back against one of the most powerful lobbies that is reliant on numbers of payment. But again, with other sort of different tactical interventions or blockages of certain circulations of goods of capital you don't need loads of people I just think you have to be precise about what exactly a given tactic is for and yeah certainly I don't think lots of people trying really really hard to convince individual capitalists to have better morals is a good idea maybe loads and loads of people ensuring that capitalist can't accumulate more capital is a different question. So um, yeah, it depends in service of what what kind of numerousness we we should Im- 
look for or need. But yeah, I think the presumption that you've just got a million people and that that's, you know, in the streets and that that's necessarily a threat is is wrong. And I point this out in the book and it's definitely not, I'm not the first person to say it. I think we get a kind of misplaced nostalgia around what radical politics looks like. So we think of the really profound successes of mass marches um, in the 60s. And we might forget that like that could, could and wasn't always, but could within a context read as a threat to the status quo, because if you don't have the internet, you don't have cell phones, you don't have the kind of speed of transportation, mass transportation we have. It's very, very difficult to get 100,000 people together in one place on one day. With Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Zoom, I mean, it's now it'd be very, very difficult to get 100,000 people together in one day and nor should we try. But that kind of mass gathering of people might be in some sort of historic imaginary what politics looks like, what protest looks like. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying we have to keep in mind that there's a reason based on different technological possibilities now that power doesn't see a gathering of 100,000 people as a threat because it was so much more easy to achieve. And, you know, obviously we're having to rethink those sorts of what a, what a tactic, what a togetherness, what a threat could look like now, given that we can't even try and be threatening numbers. Something that you write in your book is something of a reframing and deepening of the classic line, another world is possible. And I want to share it and kind of get your thoughts on it right now, because it seems very pertinent to the moment. But you write that it's a political imperative to believe impossibly that another world is possible, while necessarily being unable to explain that world from the confines of this one. It's almost like you wrote that line for this moment. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, what's funny is that I wrote that line in a an essay that I, I like a lot, but it, it seems kind of frivolous because it's about a ghost that lives in my childhood bathroom that I both do believe in and don't. And the point is that actually, when you expand that out, there are there are ethical imperatives to breaking outside of dominant belief systems um, when those dominant belief systems and ideologies are in service of of the current system of capital, of racism, of the patriarchy. But it's one of those easier said than done moments. You can't really think outside your context. You can't think outside the constructs that formed you as much as are formed by virtue of us all collectively deploying them and using them and, you know, making meaning through them. Meaning isn't made democratically, obviously. And that goes from the fact of literal, like, democratic processes and who gets to rule or not, to no less than literally how, like, language gets determined and used and learned and those sort of regimes. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a lot, there's, there are in, insurmountable barriers to necessarily imagining a whole new world, obviously, but there are obviously grand and crucial needs to do so so where do you find the cracks the apertures where do you find spaces to collectively make new and better 
meaning together to remember that these these structures are fierce but 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 mutable they're not immutable so I think yeah I think that's kind of one trying to get at there and and you know you do see you do see apertures especially in moments like this like you see cracks and you don't necessarily see a path through but you know you see you see potentials for different kinds of collectivity and collective care can I ask you what do you hope the world will look like after the pandemic has subsided oh I don't know I feel like I don't I don't I don't know if I can answer that I mean obviously I I hope we have like radically a radical revaluation of values and focus not in terms of like financial capital but actual resources and allocation and and sharing those resources as not defined by um, the arbitrary ability to to print dollars which is obviously endless um, and we stop thinking in terms of nation state governments as if they're households and realize that there simply is enough for everyone but that's obviously just a dream of rethinking how we can live with and for each other in the world i mean more realistically i hope that we do maintain in the areas we have seen it thrive right now this commitment to like living for each other um i really love the work of who i cite both in my book and in the communist we've been talking about the work of feminist theorist Sophie Lewis, who has this idea of surrogacy um, and full surrogacy now is the name of her book. And what she, she means by that, by way of a very excellent argument around the surrogacy industry and against surrogacy TM, she's invested in this idea of surrogacy of how, what would it look like if we were all surrogates for each other in all kinds of different ways? If we ushered ourselves through the world and held each other in our porousness, our wateriness, our undeniable and often conflictual interdependency. So I think this is a moment of undeniable interdependency becoming clear. Um, what would it look like to live well by it? Would be nice to see. Well, I think I could honestly keep keep you forever and keep talking about these things, but I really like that as a beautiful kind of conclusion to the conversation. Thanks for taking the time to talk. No worries. Thank you. And stay healthy and safe as much as possible. You too.